Story five of Elsie and the Child, a tale of Riceman's steps and other stories by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story five: Mister Jack Hollins against fate. One. Mr. Jack Hollins sat reading the paper at the drawing-room window on the first floor of his enormous house in Carlos Place, within a stone's throw of Grosvenor Square. It was a London afternoon, mild, languorous, and full of subtle colour, full also of baffling promises. But Mr. Jack Hollins was only aware that the date was the 21st of May, and the locality the finest residential locality in the West End of London he was a stout man of sixty with a thick neck short white hair and a clean-shaven red face neatly dressed in a provincial style his figure was such that though the easy-chair was capacious and he deeply ensconced in it he seemed to be protruding out of it or hanging over the front of it his eyes had a wary and doer expression as though saying to the newspaper that the newspaper might fool half a million people but not him he had once had a brother herbert hollins with a reputation throughout half the midlands for hearty tyrannical ruthlessness and a will-power that rode down all obstacles heaven nature and mankind herbert fell ill once of pneumonia and said to his doctor i've got a directors meeting at birmingham to-morrow and i'm going to it i forbid you to go out said the doctor i'm going to that meeting said herbert with terrible finality very well then said the doctor quietly as you please but if you go out you'll die herbert laughed convinced that he was above the common laws of cause and effect he did go to the meeting and he did die mr jack hollins used to recount this story with grim gusto as creditable to his brother's character herbert a widower like himself their wives had both failed to survive the ordeal of living with them left mr jack hollins half a million pounds jack was very rich even before that at first he had made a little money by hard work then he had made a great deal by a fluky investment in a company that owned cheap restaurants in various midland towns thence onwards he was persuaded and others were persuaded that he had a genius for finance and events certainly favoured this notion of his in proceeding upon the principle that money breeds money he had one inflexible rule never to sell out at a loss if a stock went down he held it obstinately positive that since he held it and was a financial genius it must ultimately rise often it did rise and mr jack hollins's self-satisfaction rose with it occasionally however the company would go bankrupt and then mr jack hollins had a momentary vague suspicion that he might have done better to spend his money instead of trying to force it to breed but he had a very serious and vexatious defect though he could make money he knew not how to spend he was always being half drowned under the flowing tide of wealth he privately recognized the defect admitting that he was a bungler in expenditure the fact was that he had almost no imagination and very few desires he had bought the house in carlos place by a whim a caprice an impulse it was very cheap 
he noticed that business was gradually invading the region and he thought that one day the place could be turned into a private hotel or a block of offices at much profit having bought it he had to furnish it he employed a big furnishing firm the cost of things generally startled him whose youth had passed in the narrowest commercial provincialism but he would pretend not to be startled when the furnishing firm had furnished two floors he suddenly stopped them not because the expense frightened him but because he could not see the sense of furnishing two other floors which he could never use he had a dim idea that carlo's place demanded a butler and he engaged one as however he did not know how to treat butlers he did not get value out of his fine specimen he bought the finest cigars obtainable and smoked them but improperly he bought the finest wines possible but he could not tell a burgundy from a claret or a champagne from a sparkling moselle he bought a magnificent motor-car to roll ruthlessly in it through the best streets pleased his vanity but the car was all the same somewhat of a frankenstein's monster to him he enjoyed a moderate amount of solitary travel and would make acquaintances in the saloons of steamships and in the smoking-rooms of first-rate large hotels in fashionable health resorts he had no friends didn't need friends he showed sagacity in not attempting election to a good club he would have met with trouble in a good club not the most ruthless man can successfully contend against a whole club but he sometimes walked along pell-mell enviously the magnificent motor-car with its chauffeur was below him waiting at the curb it had been waiting for two hours he argued thus it's my car i pay the chauffeur i might want to go for a ride and i might not why shouldn't the fellow wait the argument seemed to him unanswerable he gazed critically at the car then he resumed the newspaper and read an account of the new clinic which mr shelton shelton had built and endowed and presented to west ham he knew that mr shelton shelton was the owner of the newspaper and a very rich man who by dint of creating free clinics all over london had become one of our leading philanthropists a small and insignificant car driven by a young man of military and aristocratic deportment drove up to the door an elegantly dressed young woman jumped out the aristocrat chatted an instant with her saluted her and drove off again who's your man my lass mr hollins gruffly greeted the girl when she entered the drawing-room captain Coggleshill said she in a tranquil low voice with no trace of self-consciousness what brand of a captain in the first lifeguards mr jack hollins anxious above everything not to show emotion said nothing for a few moments who is he anyway he's the eldest son of sir morris Coggleshall, baronet ninth baronet i believe or perhaps it's only eighth then samuels the butler conveniently brought in tea of which many partook but not her father where did you meet him at the thé d'Anson at queen's hall i was with sarah albright she knew him he's interested in painting how long since oh about three months ago the conversation ended there minnie hollands opened the lofty window and with the earnest eye of an art student estimated the values of the surrounding architecture foliage pavements and sky and sought for possible subjects therein 
she also responded sensitively to the delicate calm beauty of the afternoon there was something in the softness of the clouds and in the faces of passers-by that touched her she was a tall well-made girl with a figure whose excellences none would dispute and a type of countenance which most women would call beautiful and most men would not her gaze was patient and benevolent mr jack hollins continued doggedly to read the paper just as though he had been alone in the drawing-room mrs hollins had been dead six years he had then been faced with the problem of looking after a girl aged seventeen and delivered from boarding-school without letting her be a nuisance to him having complete confidence in her because she was his daughter he had solved the problem chiefly by ignoring it a girl living in a big house in carlos place must be well dressed he went further and said that she might be very well dressed she had to dress herself and he was satisfied with her efforts indeed he was as proud of her appearance as he was of the appearance of his car but he paid all the bills she had no allowance and not too much pocket-money considering her exalted position similarly though she attended to certain branches of the housekeeping mr hollins was the sole authoritative housekeeper paying all bills and giving nearly all orders to samuels many would begin father says mr hollins deep sagacity told him that a girl must do something in order to keep her out of mischief and the choice of what she did was not important he saw no harm in her learning to paint and so she was permitted to go to the slade school he saw no harm either in her creating a studio from an attic he never entered the attic if she was there but occasionally when she was out he would nose about at the slade she made friends and the girls among them she would now and then ask to tea but in the back room on the ground floor and without her father there was absolutely no other entertaining with the same friends she would go to infrequent concerts and plays and semi-public or club dances secure in the conviction that she was no fool mr hollins let her be on the clear hard understanding that she let him be they went to church together about once a fortnight and perhaps once a year he would take her with him on a voyage he seldom questioned her he never kissed her one night a fortnight after the conversation about captain cogglesall minnie said captain cogglesall wants to come and see you father who's he oh you remember i told you about him he's in the first lifeguards oh can he come to-morrow he can come when he's a mind to but whether i shall be in's another matter i'll write and ask him to come to-morrow afternoon as she left the room mr holland surreptitiously examined his girl for traces of emotional excitement but he could find none he looked up sir maurice cogglesholt bart in whittaker's almanac yes sir maurice duly existed captain cogglesholt came in the insignificant car the next afternoon and was introduced to mr jack hollins by many who at once departed leaving them together so this is a captain in the first lifeguards and the eldest son of a ninth baronet said mr hollins to himself sardonically if mr hollins had not been very rich he might have been nervous but he was very rich both in money and in his daughter captain cogglesholt corresponded quite satisfactorily with mr hollins notion of what a captain in the first lifeguards and the oldest son of a ninth baronet 
ought to be he was handsome muscular slim well tailored had an admirable natural demeanour and was free from self-consciousness he sat down with an ease that mr hollands could not have emulated and talked with facility and yet with proper restraint only his voice was rather quieter than mr hollands would have expected after a few exchanges captain cogglesall announced that he wished to marry minnie he gave his age which was thirty-one and his record and his expectations he admitted that for the present he had nothing but his captain's pay and what sir morris allowed him which was not much because sir morris was poor oh ejaculated mr hollands i should like to know as soon as it is convenient to you to tell me said captain cogglesall whether in principle you have any objection to the marriage without adding anything about feeling himself to be quite unworthy of the peerless girl i don't say that i have and i don't say that i haven't mr hollands answered with brutal indifference but have you got enough to keep my daughter decently or haven't you enough to keep us from starving mr hollands but my father and i were hoping that you would do the usual thing and make a settlement you were were you well as you've mentioned your father perhaps the old gentleman had better come and see me he would not refer to the captain's parent as sir morris no he would not my father lives in northumberland said captain cogglesall with undiminished suavity and what if he does asked mr hollands this business is worth a journey to london isn't it or doesn't the old gentleman think so he spoke as it were menacingly captain cogglesall replied that he would try to secure his father's presence in carlo's place a few minutes later he took leave mr hollands rose and accompanied his guest as far as the door of the drawing-room and then remembered that he ought to have rung the bell to warn samuels to be in attendance he called out samuels loudly over the banisters of the great staircase shook hands firmly with the suitor and returned to his seat by the drawing-room window he said not a word about the interview to minnie and she showed no curiosity but naturally she had her private source of information the next morning at breakfast he said so uh, you'd leave me to fend for myself yes father said her father's daughter with a quiet unfathomable benevolent smile that ended the family conversation on the mighty subject money is wonderful two days later sir morris cogglesall made a personal call upon mr jack hollands sir morris conceived that he was performing a really very astonishing act of condescension but being a gentleman or the ruins of one he kept this conception absolutely to himself and to his son marmion upon the arrival of sir morris it seemed to samuels the butler that things were looking up a bit in carlo's place visits from two obviously real gentlemen one of them titled and with an adorably curt imperious and curse you for a flunky manner exhilarated samuels and he became a better butler for a time the style in which he showed sir morris to the drawing-room left little to be desired indeed sir morris asked himself how the deuce these upstart plutocrats contrived always to wipe up all the best butlers sir morris was a very different man from his son at the wheel of a taxi he could easily have passed for an old london cabby who had taken to mechanical transport late in life he was stout and thick-necked like mr jack hollands he had white hair and luxuriant white eyebrows 
he wore a black and white check suit white spats and a white tie he moved quickly his voice was enormous how'd you do sir morris said mr hollins but do not imagine that he added very good of you to come all this way to see me for he did not however he recognized in sir morris a fellow-creature and did for him what he had not dreamt of doing for his son he ordered drinks and cigars sir morris puffed and blew and gulped and smacked and talked loudly about railway trains crop prospects the prospects of revolution and the folly of the nation then suddenly he said by the way mr hollins i suppose we can settle our little affair in two words my son wants to marry your daughter i agree i had the pleasure of meeting your daughter yesterday at claridge's and i can only repeat i agree i agree if you do well sir morris i'm like yourself i'm not one for beating about the bush and i can give you my answer in two words i agree that's a great whisky mr hollins if you'll allow me to say so what settlement do you intend to make on miss minnie roughly speaking of course i don't want to press for details it's a matter for our lawyers mr hollins replied harshly in a voice as loud as sir morris's own oh, i'm not much for settlements but surely you'll make a settlement my good sir it's the usual thing it isn't the usual thing in my family it may be in yours but we're speaking of my daughter and my daughter belongs to my family but surely my good sir as i say i'm not one for beating about the bush and if you'd like it straight i shall make no settlement at this moment these two stout thick-headed red-faced old men grew stouter and thicker-necked and more red-faced and it appeared to be a nice question which of them would explode first but simultaneously they both reflected and saved themselves by astounding efforts of self-control mr jack hollins spoke again i'm not asking your son to marry my daughter it's him and you as are asking me to let my daughter marry him i'm not going to buy your son it's the duty of a man to keep his wife and if he can't do it he'd better not marry if your son is marrying my daughter for my money he can't have either if he isn't let him prove it that's how i look at it if there's any hole in my argument happen you'll tell me a pause sir morris finished his whisky i'll uh, think it over said he dashed and irritated i'll think it over nay said mr hollins you'll decide at once before you leave this room if you don't i shall my daughter's my daughter and there isn't going to be any hesitation do, do you mean i i mean all of it we're talking business and i mean all of it you know mr hollins you've succeeded in putting me in a very awkward position i don't want to disappoint marmion and yet i have a duty a, a, a serious duty i appreciate your straightforward methods i'm all in favour of straightforwardness saves trouble in the end of course of course then you won't take my daughter as she is no mr hollins i don't say that i must beg you not to put words into my mouth i don't say that then you'll take her as she is i see no alternative mr hollins and that's flat i see no alternative but to accept your condition may i help myself sir morris poured out more whisky mr jack hollins became grimly happy he had defeated the ancient northumbrian family minnie would be lady coggleshall in due course 
and he would hear the servants refer to her as her ladyship his mood softened as the mood of napoleon would soften in intimacy after vast triumphs you needn't worry sir morris said he my will's made and has been this long time minnie's the sole legatee and she'll come into fifty thousand pounds a year when i kick the bucket and i don't mind telling you now as we've come to an understanding that i shall give her five thousand a year to do what she likes with i'm a reasonable man uh, you are you are indeed mr hollands very generous of you but i can't be forced and i can't be bullied thus the marriage of minnie hollands and marmion coggles hall captain in the first lifeguards and heir to an ancient baronetcy duly came to pass mr jack hollands behaved characteristically first he said to his daughter look here my lass none of this fashionable wedding nonsense or you won't have your father at your wedding oh father answered minnie softly i should hate it so would marmion you needn't trouble about that we'll have the marriage at the registry office and i'll be married in my going-away dress the plan was altered and it was altered by her father little by little the old man couldn't get the idea of orange blossoms out of his head nor the vision of his daughter in a white dress and veil he had insisted at first that the wedding party should consist of the two persons chiefly concerned and two witnesses himself and sir morris and to this he adhered strictly because he was afraid that in the midst of a concourse he might make himself ridiculous in all other respects however the wedding was fashionable the wedding breakfast was of the highest sumptuousness like the bridal dress the ceremony took place at st george's hanover square and red cloth was laid on the pavement for it and the awning erected above the red cloth and the usual crowd gathered and was universally disappointed by the fewness of the party after the register was signed minnie kissed her father thus thoughtfully saving him the agony of making the first move to kiss her the touch of her lips on his raspy cheek affected him rather disconcertingly she was very mysterious to him in that moment not like his familiar daughter but like a woman strange exquisite and incomprehensible and it seemed monstrous and barbaric that captain cogglesall should whisk away this delicate and sensitive creature into some withdrawn secrecy and call her his own fortunately the queer sensation lingered no more than a moment in mr jack holland's soul in another moment mr jack holland's was himself again he presented to the pair a small house in select hill street together with two thousand pounds for furnishing and he paid in advance the first half-yearly instalment of the promised five thousand a year in short he behaved with an old-fashioned grandiosity and his satisfaction in doing so was much enhanced by the certitude of his conviction that the Cogglesalls were as poor as church mice and that if he chose he could eat up the Cogglesalls and Cogglesall high their place and all that was theirs without having indigestion the prospect of living alone in carlos place did not in the least affright him Two still he went away for four months reaching para and then going a further thousand miles or so up the amazon he wrote no letters except business letters so that samuels was the only person to be advised of his return 
on the morning after his arrival he had the idea of strolling round to hill street to see how his daughter had been getting along with the husband who was captain in the first life guards the colour of the front door of the Cogglesall house annoyed him very much it was a brilliant uncompromising vermilion as he had never wandered about chelsea this was the first vermilion front door in his experience not the colour itself but the fantastic public silliness of the thing vexed him he noticed moreover that the blinds and curtains of the house were a challenge to the conventions of british domesticity a parlour-maid dressed like no other parlour-maid within his memory opened to him mrs coggles holly in said he and stepped forward in the firm fashion of a broker's man who must not stand on ceremony in order to effect an entrance he had a faint hope that the maid might reply her ladyship is at home but he was disappointed sir morris had not expired during his absence and many had not yet come into a title he told the maid fiercely who he was and she led him into a room which like the front door aroused his angry contempt the door of it was black and the door-case pale blue the walls were not papered but palely distempered the scanty furniture was painted in strange tints and there was not a bit of mahogany or oak anywhere the fireplace was draped in slaty silk the lower half of the walls was covered with paintings and drawings and prints whose subjects were in his opinion either incomprehensible or idiotic or indecent and most of which had the air of having been daubed by humorous children he could better have withstood these tasteless jokes had they been respectably and stoutly framed in english gold but very few of them were framed at all the cushions which abounded seemed to have been borrowed from a pantomime on the mantelpiece was a whole row of unprecedented dolls disorder was everywhere many came into the room not hurrying but moving rather more quickly than usual there was a look on her face such as he had never seen there she was marmion's wife all her physique had altered and for the better in fact she would have been a magnificent spectacle but for the huge ugly apron that she was wearing which apron covered her from neck to ankle well father she greeted him tranquilly as if she had talked with him last on the previous evening how are you she shook hands did not kiss we were both up in the studio painting quaggy will be down in a minute quaggy demanded mr jack hollins who's he oh it's what i call marmion now i made it up he had left this girl sane he had given this girl the house and two thousand for furnishing it such furniture as he had described could not have cost more than about fifteen shillings he was also allowing this girl five thousand a year then the husband appeared in a brown velveteen coat and a necktie that might have been ripped off a cushion cover he had decidedly put on weight but did not seem to be in very good condition the perfection of his social manner however was unimpaired ignoring mr jack holland's irritated taciturnity he talked at ease of the amazon and the booth line of steamers and of similar matters suitable to the comprehension of a father-in-law and as he talked many with shining eyes 
happy and absent-minded stroked his velveteen shoulders at intervals in adoration oh he was decidedly at peace with his world was marmion you must see the rest of the house father said minnie well if you want to know said mr jack hollins after the agitating tour of inspection the double drawing-room had been turned into two studios well if you want to know i don't like it and that's flat no observed marmion with a benignant placidity we feared it might hurt your finer sensibilities jackanapes the fellow was laughing at his father-in-law mr hollins was furious but he controlled himself he declined to stay to lunch partly because of his general resentment and partly because he detested the dining-table which was ridiculously narrow and painted in a most offensive orange tint marmion very courteously regretted mr holland's inability to lunch he passed his elegant hand across his forehead and minnie exclaiming that quaggy suffered too much from neuralgia started on the disquieting subject of his health mr hollands had a lancinating qualm if he dies before the old baronet my daughter will never be her ladyship then minnie referred apparently quite incidentally to the fact that quaggy had decided to resign his commission in the first life guards so that he might have more leisure for painting this was precisely the straw that broke the back of mr jack hollands's temper the veins on his neck became manifest and as her father began to lay about him minnie was reminded of the terrible humiliations her mother had suffered in the past she blushed for her father but she left the situation for her husband to handle mr hollands both ramped and raved he would have his way his son-in-law was largely dependent upon him and his son-in-law should not resign his commission he didn't mind his son-in-law playing at art but he would absolutely not permit him to be a professional painter no let him understand that once for all mr jack hollins's daughter was not going to be the wife of a professional painter if marmion resigned his commission he would then no doubt relinquish physical exercise entirely and in all probability would die and the title would lapse a pretty thing what does your father say to this senseless scheme demanded mr hollins well my father objects to it in much the same style as you do answered marmion blandly and in his tone mr hollins surmised an infuriating irony you never know how to take the fellow i should think he did object mr hollins cried anybody would who wasn't a damned fool at these words marmion walked slowly to the window and looked out anyhow mr hollins finished you let me hear from you to-morrow morning that you've changed your mind or else yes said marmion turning his head or else not another penny of my money will come into this house you can bet your life on that i've got my daughter's interest to think of mr hollins said marmion looking out into the street again forgive me for saying so but it occurs to me that you are presuming a little on your position as my wife's father in this house and i may add it's not your commission i'm going to resign it's my own mr hollins made the worst of his way out and nobody accompanied him to the vermilion front door three his state of mind can only be described as one of exasperated fury 
the reasons for the fury were lost in the fury itself mr jack hollins had ceased to be rational samuels had immediate cause to learn his master's condition the next morning no letter came either from marmion or minnie mr hollins had feared that there would be no letter and yet he was amazed at the defiance these two persons who had absolutely no weapons were nevertheless defying him he could not understand it the thing was scarcely conceivable he had never been defied before all the ruthlessness of the brother of the man who had defied nature herself and damned the consequences came into play and mr hollins had an original and brilliant idea he called up mr shelton shelton philanthropic giver of clinics on the telephone mr shelton shelton being a very important person indeed was not easy to get at even on the telephone but mr hollins perhaps by the help of the ruthlessness in his voice got at him and explaining that he desired an interview about a philanthropic scheme of magnitude obtained an appointment for the next day the appointment was confirmed by a secretary's letter the next day there being no sign of any sort from the house with the vermilion door mr hollins kept the appointment he had to wait for nearly a quarter of an hour in the antechambers of mr shelton shelton which annoyed him considerably mr shelton shelton received mr jack hollins somewhat nonchalantly in a magnificently furnished private office he was a short thin man with a shiny red complexion an oily insinuating voice a short pointed white beard a frock coat and the habit of joining his hands at the tips of his fingers mr jack hollins thought he resembled a revivalist preacher or a money-lender's tout much more than a renowned philanthropist but he admitted at the first glance that mr shelton shelton must be an exceedingly clever and wary man he was the least bit afraid lest the philanthropist might in some imagined way get the better of him please do accept my apologies for keeping you waiting my dear mr hollins began mr shelton shelton his hand folding like a snake around the hand of mr hollins i hope i needn't tell you that circumstances were too much for me they often are alas do sit down i am delighted to meet a director of the midlands cooked food company which has done so much to cater honestly for our impoverished middle classes and so on mr hollins soon perceived that mr shelton shelton had learned a good deal about him and after mr hollins had mumbled something mr shelton shelton went on again i feel sure you'll understand if i ask you at this first interview to state your case as briefly as possible my day has been deranged i have an appointment with the countess of alcar in a quarter of an hour and another with the first secretary of the american embassy in an hour from now i can state my case in five minutes not fifteen mr shelton shelton said mr jack hollins firmly i'm like yourself a rich man mr shelton shelton nodded approvingly i've got nothing to do with my money no family except one daughter who's married and settled i've no vices and few pleasures and so i don't spend my money i want to do something with it something useful i particularly don't want to leave it behind me ah very good very good i wish there were more rich men of your kidney mr hollins you need advice and you've come to me 
don't run along quite so fast said mr hollins in his soul to mr shelton shelton and aloud it occurred to me that a gentleman of your experience might be able and willing to give me a few tips a nod's as good as a wink to me and i wouldn't care to bother you i can paddle my own canoe but any advice from somebody like yourself would be appreciated pray don't apologize pray do not apologize i am entirely at your service i'm at the service of humanity everybody in england knows that unfortunately there is no lack of charitable objects which you could devote yourself to no lack personally i do what i can as possibly you may have heard but it's so little so little at this point mr hollins was startled to see tears in the eyes of mr shelton shelton he thought at first that he must be mistaken but when two drops rolled down the wrinkled red cheeks of mr shelton shelton he knew that he was not mistaken the tears inspired mr hollins with disgust he feared and detested mr shelton shelton and he would have departed but for his resolve to pick mr shelton shelton's brain if possible he wanted to avoid making a public fool of himself as a philanthropist and would neglect no precaution to that end in such wise did these two determined benefactors hobnob together without even a cigarette to help them mr shelton shelton being a person of the most austere principles for the welfare of the multitudinous bottom dog before we go any further said mr shelton shelton can you furnish me with any estimate of the sum which you have in mind to employ on your proposed scheme the choice of the scheme would obviously be influenced by the sum at disposal half a million to commence with answered mr holland succinctly mr shelton shelton glanced first at the clock and then at his watch uh, you must let me think it over mr hollins said he you must let me think it over the sum is not inconsiderable and may i say how deeply i admire your simplicity and your public spirit i will think it over and write you in a few days he rang a bell by some magic means mr hollins found himself expeditiously in the street and the novel idea presented itself to him that he was not the only strong and ruthless man on the face of the earth four several days later about six o'clock in the evening minnie called to see her father samuels when he opened the door raised his eyebrows and gave the slightest lift to his head as if to indicate that the tyrant was above and in a highly explosive condition no butler could have been at once more discreet and more informative samuels looked at his former mistress and fellow-slave and admired her greatly yes marriage had improved her and made her a magnificent spectacle good afternoon father she said in the drawing-room the old gentleman was seated by the fire what do you want i just looked in to see how you were getting on has marmion resigned his commission yes minnie sat down taking off her gloves and mr hollins jumped up ah he has has he mr hollins cried raucously he gazed at his daughter rabid and puzzled the blow had fallen he was definitely and uncompromisingly defied there had been no parleying no attempting of any sort to placate him he examined as well as he could in his extreme excitement minnie's placid and already half maternal face 
she and her husband were ready to sacrifice five thousand a year and perhaps also the relatively trifling sums received from sir morris in order to prove their independence of him they were facing poverty for themselves and their children to that same end it was incomprehensible there must be something there must be a good deal of himself in that young woman who he realized had always baffled him even when he had humiliated and tortured her and forced her to obey him in her own way she must be as ruthless as he was ah but he would be ruthless he would be ruthless as never before he simply could not bear being defied the trouble was not now that marmion had resigned his commission it was that marmion and minnie had defied him you wait he said with terrible contained bitterness and hastened to his bedroom drawing a bunch of keys from his pocket as he went his safe was in the bedroom he returned with his will it was not a very long document he opened it and beat it out with his open palm you see that he said that meant fifty thousand a year to you it will mean nothing in a minute because i'm going to burn it i'm going to give away most of what i have while i'm alive and what's left will go to charity by a new will he kept on slapping the page and crying look at it read it look at it just then samuels came in with a letter that had arrived by the six o'clock delivery recognizing the envelope mr jack holland snatched at it dropping the will the letter was as he surmised from mr shelton shelton he was intending to show it to minnie as a further proof of his plans but it was as follows my dear mr hollands advertising to our very interesting and agreeable interview i cannot tell you how profoundly i appreciate your desire to give me so large a sum as half a million pounds to help forward my philanthropic schemes it is a mark of confidence such as even i have seldom received and encourages me to continue energetically in my life's work if you will call to-morrow at about four i will explain to you in some detail how i propose to employ your munificent donation and perhaps at the same time you will indicate what arrangements you are making for the transfer of the necessary stocks or other securities believe me my dear mr hollands very cordially yours i shelton shelton the recipient of the letter gasped tried to speak and could not stamped his feet violently crunched the letter into a ball and threw it into the fire and the envelope after it the sight of his speechless rage was appalling so much so that minnie lost her calm and exclaimed in protest father she had never seen anything like it the old man's face violently twitching seemed to puff up the veins of his neck overcharged with blood at terrific pressure stood out like raised seams his breathing was stertorous his eyes rolled the continued violent efforts to relieve his emotion by articulation racked his obese frame producing such exhaustion that he fell at last into the easy chair and his head sank to one side against the flap minnie knelt down to him and perceived that he had been drinking whisky she rang the bell and then as there was no immediate answer ran out on to the landing samuels samuels father is taken ill i think he's had an apoplectic stroke telephone for the doctor 
her voice seemed to resound through the house and she heard responsive feet hurrying and noises from the basement when she returned to him mr holland's forehead had gone white and his hands were blue she tried to straighten the twisted right leg it was as heavy as lead he was unconscious and he was paralyzed half an hour later and a few seconds after the doctor entered mr hollands died the enormous impudence and vanity of the great philanthropist had killed him not for another hour did marmion arrive mr hollands was then stretched on his bed decently and in order the lights had been extinguished in the big drawing-room quaggy murmured minnie and burst into tears there was no sobbing and the tears passed like a brief summer shower but marmion had never seen her cry before and nobody in the house had seen her cry before he held her gently she was stricken with grief for the terrible old man beaten as it were at the post of destiny but for the chance coming of a letter at a certain moment he might have laid waste her whole life yet the foolish creature ordinarily so wise could feel acutely the pathos of the dramatic defeat of mr holland's demoniacal ruthlessness it was tragic that he could not win she wondered what the burnt letter could have contained all this is very dangerous for you my dear said her husband come away she controlled herself what's that paper you've got she asked murmuringly it's the will she turned in obedience from the bed realizing the wisdom of her husband's advice the thought of the vast responsibility of great riches and of her future role as a mother solemnized her and she leaned softly on marmion he closed the door on the poor remains of the formidable and ineffectual juggernaut poor old chap muttered marmion for he could admire the heroic even in savagery and he was one of those simple ones who remember that we are all heaven's creatures End of story five.